Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 817 with Jennifer Garvey Berger. Jennifer has some excellent perspective when it comes to complexity, uncertainty, navigating that, doing it well and feeling okay while you're at it. So you'll learn one, how uncertainty affects your nervous system, two, the secret to boosting that nervous system, and three, how laughter helps you be more awesome. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've mentioned, please pay us a visit over awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP817. And if you're hanging out at awesomeatyourjob.com, please take a nice little spin around. We got a lot of goodies for you above and beyond the audio here over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Jennifer's story. Jennifer Garvey Berger is the chief cultivating officer and founder of Cultivating Leadership, a consultancy that serves executives and executive teams in the private, nonprofit, and government sectors. Her clients include Google, Microsoft, Novartis, Wikipedia, and Oxfam International. She's the author of Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, Changing on the Job, Developing Leaders for a Complex World. Big thanks to Jennifer for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and I appreciate you being up and with us. Uh, in France, it's a bit of a different time zone situation, and I understand you've lived in New Zealand, England, and France. I'm curious if you've picked up any any wisdom, having lived in, in different places around the world, that us Yankees, <laughs> who, who have not lived outside the U.S., might appreciate. We moved to New Zealand in 2006. And one of the first things I noticed is that when you move from a country like the US, where I was born and grew up, to a tiny country in the corner of the world, if if you can imagine the world having a corner, New Zealand would be in it. Mm -hmm. It was just amazing how much New Zealanders were engaged with the whole world because New Zealand itself was a little bit too small to be just engaged with New Zealand. And I found that curiosity about the whole world is very interesting and such a small such a small country so far from everybody else taught me to be a little bit more curious i think that is good and i i've been surprised at how when i talk to people from other countries they have a knowledge of and interest in some of the happenings in sort of united states politics it's like, boy, I don't think I could name your president or king or right? prime minister. I don't think I even know, <laughs> shamefully, you know, what head of state title that you use over there. Excuse me. So, yeah, I, I do feel a little bit sheepish or embarrassed at how 
there, there does seem to be an awareness and engagement in a broader circle than just the, a narrower view of that country itself. It was amazing. I used to get into taxi cabs and say where I wanted to go and they would pick my accent and then they would start asking me detailed questions about American politics. Yeah. Now I'd be like, wow, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I haven't even <laughs> yeah, had that yeah. question myself. That's amazing. It's amazing. So yes, the open curiosity about how the rest of the world works is, I think it's easier to attain when you're not the big guy. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, let's talk about attaining some complexity geniusness. Your book is called Unleash Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. That sounds like a handy thing to have. But before we get into the depths, could you first share precisely what do you mean by complexity? Yeah. So complexity is, for many of us, it's what makes our lives so tiring right now. Complexity is that that which has so many intersecting parts, so many interactions from so many places that you can't figure out what's going to happen next. No one person can control anything. And the outcomes that come out of it they call them emergent. They can't be predicted and they are a feature of all of those intersecting lines and relationships and conversations and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, certainly. So I think a lot of larger organizations to <laughs> seem to have that going for them or against them, as the case may be in terms of intersecting departments and responsibilities and stakeholders and decision matrices or processes and things to be followed, it certainly can be overwhelming. So becoming a genius in this domain sounds very handy. Could you kick us off by sharing a particularly surprising or counterintuitive or extra fascinating discovery you've made about this stuff while researching the topic and working with folks in this zone. The first idea that I found amazing was that we do have a genius for it. The book I wrote before this one is called Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps. And that book, I researched all the ways we stink at complexity, to be honest the way our bodies and our brains work against our ability to handle complexity well. And you talk about the complexity of an office. There's also the complexity of COVID. There's the complexity of relationships. There's the complexity of living in a city right now. Life is really uncertain, unpredictable, and it has lots of these intersecting pieces. And my last book was to try and figure out how are we not good at that? <laughs> like, what are the patterns of our not goodness? And so the first question I took on when we were researching this book is, are there ways we're really good at this? Are there ways we actually do have a genius for it? So the first aha I had was, wow, we have so much in us that's great at handling complexity. We have so many natural human attributes that when we rely on them, when we lean into them, we can handle complexity with grace and style and creativity and awesomeness. And the kicker is, it turns out when we are in a complex situation, our body understands that as a threat and all the awesomeness goes away. Hmm. <laughs> so we're great at handling complexity until it gets complex and then we're not good at it. And so the body, is that sort of like a stress response type exactly. situation going on there? cortisol, et cetera. That's exactly right. Okay. The classic stress response. 
Okay. And just to triple check that we're on the same page, we and us in this context just means humanity, human beings. Okay. That's what I mean. <laughs> That's what I mean. All, right. All of us. As far as we can tell from the research, this is like a natural thing. My guess is mm-hmm. it's different across populations, but in the the research I came to, uncertainty is actually metabolized by the body as threat. And your body doesn't know whether you're feeling uncertain about what the stock market's going to do or whether you feel uncertain about whether something's going to jump out and eat you. And so what your body does is it prepares you to be narrowed, to be self-protective and to run like crazy. None of these things are that useful in complexity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so could you give us an example of how there's something, there's some complexity that shows up and then we have a stress response that is suboptimal that professionals could relate to? I think we know this when we walk into a meeting and we think we know exactly what the agenda is and what our role is in it. And suddenly there are different people in the room or on the Teams or Zoom or whatever than we expected. And it looks like our job is going to be different than we thought it was going to be in that meeting. And we don't know what it is. I'm guessing everybody has some experience of sweaty palms and shallow breath and wide eyes trying to figure out what am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to show up here? And that kind of narrow-minded focus that might actually take us out of the meeting. It might be like people are talking and we hear wah, 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 wah in the background. Mm-hmm. We don't even we don't even know what's going on particularly because we are so what our body's saying is run. That's our our body's main message. Mm-hmm. That's intriguing. Well, Jennifer, I'm encouraged by what you say there with regard to the the stress response is natural for for all of us when there's a switcheroo going on. Because I'm thinking about the the Clifton Strengths assessment puts adaptability for me personally as one of my very bottommost strengths. They don't use the word weaknesses, but but I know <laughs> it's like well, like bottommost <laughs> strengths is adaptability. And so when I encounter a switcheroo, I do feel some like huh what. What's going on? I, I thought we were doing this. Well, this is the time that we've established for that. But apparently we're not doing that. And so, I mean, I can get there. I can calm down. I just I just really need a moment to, to really process, reassess. Like, okay, before we were going to do this, however, the context have shifted in this way. And now we are doing that. Okay. Kind of reorienting, reprogramming, repositioning. All right. So now let's talk about this new thing. And it, sometimes it feels like other people are just like rolling with it. And and I'm a little late to the party, but it sounds reassuring that everybody has some kind of a feeling of this when there's a shift step going on. Oh, I think so. I think so. And whatever the size shift is that changes our reactions, there's research that shows that people are generally more satisfied with their life conditions if they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness than if they're diagnosed with something that may or may not be terminal. Yeah. And this is like mind-blowing for me, right? So that if you know that your illness is terminal, it calms you down. I know what's going to happen next. I can predict this thing. I know where we're going. But if you don't know, your nervous system is activated. I don't know where this is going. Is it going to be diagnosed as terminal? What's going to happen to me? Living in that uncertainty is harder than even living in the ultimate certainty of your own demise. For me, this is like an example of the ways uncertainty is 
is really not that friendly to our bodies, right? We just do not like this thing. Unless we go to a movie, in which case then we like it. We like it in the movies. We don't like it in our real lives. Yeah. Well, that's just really striking. And I'm chewing on that right now. And I guess I'm thinking if that's true, then it would seem the natural implication to me is maybe our best strategy is to assume that it is a terminal illness. And then you have that certainty for now. And then maybe you'll, I don't know, have a second. Well, sometimes when people discover this tragic news, they really do live life to the full. Sometimes. And that could be inspiring. And then you may have a pleasant surprise. Actually, you're going to live longer. It's like, oh, cool. So I guess, that, so anyway, that's, I might be way oversimplifying things here, Jennifer, but that's sort of what, what I'm thinking is like, if, if that's how we work, maybe we're best, better off just assuming the worst and being delightfully surprised if our assumptions are incorrect. Is that one useful strategy? I'm guessing in, in some situations that is a useful strategy, but we've all been thrown mm -hmm. by COVID, yeah. right? And we all know that our travel plans for a business trip or a holiday might be upended at the last minute, right? We can't plan for the worst all the time and like not make plans or else we wouldn't go anywhere. And so we do sometimes have to throw ourselves into the game. And in the game, we, we know that there are things we're going to be able to predict. And then there's just a ton we're not going to be able to predict. And getting our bodies able to handle that and you did it just a minute ago when you were talking about the great switch up and you became frazzled for a moment and then you realized you were, I mean, you were fake frazzled, but you were, you realized mm. you were fake frazzled and you, you breathed and you noticed and you calmed yourself down. And this is the first thing for us to do is to notice, oh, I feel frazzled now. How do I return to my body? How do I return to my breath? Because it turns out we can in fact switch on the part of the nervous system that is helpful for us in complexity and that brings online all the things we want, we can actually switch it on on purpose, right? It switches okay. off when we face into complexity, but there are all these moves we can make, short-term and longer-term moves that mean we get to be the boss of our nervous system to a certain extent. And that is that is amazing to be able to hack into this thing that humans have just been able to like just run in the background. Now we need to hack into it. And there are ways to do that. Well, it's intriguing. And <laughs> I'm just imagining the nervous system saying, you're not the boss of me. And he's like, yes, I am. So lay it on us. How do we become the boss of our nervous system? So the first thing is we need to notice it, right? Okay. I think everything starts with noticing, which is why having this conversation is great because before I did the research for this book, I'm not sure how much I noticed my nervous system to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, I think it just ran, right? And now after after having done the research that we did and and really thinking about it, there are all kinds of ways we can notice. We can notice our breathing. We can notice our heart rate. We can notice the way we're sitting or standing or moving, how fast we're talking. We can notice all these things and you'll have some constellation of things that can alert you all my sympathetic nervous system, my stressful, my fight or flight, often people call it nervous system is running the show right now. It's not a help in this situation. I don't need to fight or flee from anybody right now. It's a meeting. I need to be here. And once we notice that we're in this place, the next thing we can do is change our breathing, just as you did in your example, right? You, mm -hmm. just like your mama told you to take three deep breaths before going any further, right? Actually, 
your mama was right because deep breaths that push out the diaphragm and that have a slower exhale, those actually activate this complexity-friendly nervous system. They switch our nervous systems. We have the switch at hand all the time. And I think we could use that switch all the time. We could use it Mm -hmm. 80 times a day. And most of the folks I work with need to be reminded that they have this thing right with them. Okay. And when it comes to deep breathing, any pro tips, do's or don'ts to make that work for you? I mean, I've, this has come up before, but I've got the Breathwork app on my phone. I think it's fun. And there's so many varieties in terms of, and for this many, out for that many, through the nose, through the mouth, through alternating nostrils. Like, oh, okay, that's fancy. So any, any pro tips on, is there a deep breathing approach that maximally helps us here? As far as I can tell, the deep breathing approach that helps you the most is the one you can learn to use in your meeting. Okay. Right? Where alternating nostril breathing is harder <laughs> when the accounting team is looking at you. Yeah. The, the people are like, what are you doing over there? <laughs> <laughs> so something that you can remember, I've talked to many people about this. Sometimes people find that counting your breath is super helpful. And other people find when I count my breath, it makes me stressed out. Mm-hmm. You do you and figure out what's the good thing. The thing that we know helps the nervous system, slower exhales than inhales and your diaphragm moving. Both of those things are important. If you can tick those two boxes, all the others, yes, they're incredibly varied states that you can get into with your breath. I'm just trying to get us prepared to handle complexity, and those two boxes will do. So slower exhales than inhales means it might be like inhaling for a count of four-ish, and exhaling for a count of eight-ish, for example. Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. It turns out that when you inhale, an inhale activates your fight-or-flight nervous system, and an exhale activates your complexity-friendly nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. And so if you can activate one more than the other, that's a win. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then, how long would we need to do this breathing? Can I see results in... 10 seconds or is three minutes a super sweet spot or what do you recommend? I think you can, you can start to see results in three breaths. Okay, cool. I think, I think it's fast. So three breaths will, will do something and would 30 breaths do more? Again, if you have time and space to drop into some meditative state, maybe the thing I like about breath work is it's so fast. And so Mm -hmm. dropping into a meditative state, always good. If you can do it, that's excellent. Again, hard to do in a meeting without people thinking you're odd or not present Mm. or whatever. Unless you all do it together, then that's fun. But if you're just trying to manage your own nervous system, watching your breath is helpful. By the way, if you have a team of people and everybody in the meeting is agitated, having your breath be a little bit audible, slowing down your breath and having it be audible just for one or two breaths will actually make others in the meeting also slow their breathing. And you'll hear other people also kind of sigh. And then you are not just deactivating your stress response. You're beginning to deactivate the stress responses of the people around you. That's cool. And I'm curious if you have any nifty research or or numbers which suggest Hey, this is just how much smarter you're going to be simply by taking three-ish breaths. 
I don't have any research about breath. There's really good research about sleep, which is another genius. There's really good. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about sleep. Let's talk about sleep. Yeah. I happen to know you recently had a baby. I sure did. And <laughs> so my guess is, you know, a lot more about sleep deprivation than most humans right now from the experiment you're running in your own life. Yeah. But sleep is, I always have to figure out how to phrase this because it's the least helpful thing in the world for people who aren't getting enough sleep to find out how stress inducing it is mm -hmm. for them to need to get more sleep. Right. So I want to say we could all just do a little bit better. By and large, mm -hmm. the modern life we live interrupts our sleep in a way that's not very helpful. And if we begin to work on it a little bit more and a little bit more, then we can actually take sleep as a piece of our job. How to be awesome mm -hmm. at your job? You prioritize sleep. It turns out that the sleep you get early in the night helps you code the things that you did yesterday into your long-term memory and transfers them to long-term memory. That's helpful. The sleep you get later in the night, like the early morning sleep, that helps you code people's faces as less threatening. So if you cut off the sleep in the early part of the night and the early part of the morning, you, you go to bed late and you wake up early, then you're going to go to bed not remembering quite what happened yesterday and also thinking everybody's out to get you, which is, these are not helpful. Mm -hmm. These are not helpful ways of connecting with your world. Okay. So sleep, one key thing is to just get in bed, turn off the lights at a reasonable hour, do the math associated with when you got to wake up and then when, when you got to go to bed. Any other pro tips on sleeping that is novel for folks? I think for me, the, for me, the most novel thing is, and this, it sounds boring. I know it sounds boring, is that we have to think about our sleep during the day. We have to actually plan our night's sleep the way we would plan our workout or our dinner or whatever else we do that's good for us. And I believe that sleep is a part of our job. And I used to treat it as like sleep was the inconvenient thing that happened when I couldn't keep my eyes open any longer. And I did it until I could stand to wake up, right? Like that's how I treated sleep. Mm -hmm. And now I understand that treating sleep that way as if it's kind of an annoyance really reduced my commitment to creating the conditions in my life to get good sleep. And now I prioritize. I really prioritize. What does it mean for what hours I'll take phone calls? What does it mean for what hours I'll have caffeine? What does it mean for what hours I'll have alcohol? I really prioritize sleep because I understand that it creates the, the conditions for my nervous system to be smooth and happy, as well as there's a whole lot of other stuff it does. But that's what I lean into. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you said you, you have some, some hot numbers associated with just how much dumber sleep deprivation is making us. Numbers are not exactly my thing. I can point you in the direction of numbers. I'm good with metaphors. Mm -hmm. If you were looking at my strengths finder, you would find me with like in the strengths and the metaphors and the numbers would be my lower strengths or weaknesses. We might even say the thing that they attach it to that I really like makes sense to me is alcohol, right? Every hour you don't sleep is the equivalent of a drink or two, depending on your stature, a drink or two. And that means that if you lose 
three hours of sleep in a night, you're walking around drunk. Mm-hmm. Basically, you have as much of a chance as getting into a car accident as somebody who's been drinking. You have as much of a chance as doing or saying something you regret later as somebody who's been drinking. It's, it is the cognitive equivalent of alcohol, but less fun. Okay. So there's, there's the sleeping, <laughs> but less fun. Okay. And then how about the moving? The moving really matters. We know that our bodies were meant to move and we spend most of our time moving our mouths and maybe our fingers on a keyboard. But actually, when when we get this burst of stress hormones in our bodies, really helps to move them off, right? They exist in order to be run off. And unless we do something, we don't have to work out 30 minutes a day and to get our nervous system in line. There are these ideas about like micro bursts of literally 10 seconds of exercise. They're studying amounts of exercise as small as 10 seconds and getting breathless for 10 seconds, running up the stairs instead of walking up the stairs, for example, changes your nervous system in a great way. In a good way. Well, I, I guess I'm thinking if, if I'm doing a sprint and we're talking about stress, that seems like that would make my body stress systems more stress. Like, whoa, this is intense. But that's a, that's a positive thing. It turns out you're exactly right. During the sprint, your body experiences stress. After the sprint, your body experiences mm-hmm. release from stress. So if you're having a heavy day, it's a bad meeting. And then you have to get to the next bad meeting and you can run up your stairs in between them. Yeah, you'll be stressed for those 10 seconds that you're running up the stairs. But actually the the rebound, they call it the mm-hmm. parasympathetic rebound, the rebound after that is super beneficial and it lasts a while. So this is another thing to do, even if you're just clicking at home from one Zoom line to into a Teams meeting, if you run down the stairs and get yourself a cup of tea and run back to your office, you'll be in better shape for your next meeting. Hopefully, if the tea is hot, you have a lid for your mug or beverage holster of choice. Just really visualizing that scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a pro tip. Okay. And so when, when do I get that rebound? Is it, is it immediately or as soon as I catch my breath again? Or like, when can I start reaping what I have sown? I think it's right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. As soon as you start to breathe normally, your body's like, oh, I feel refreshed. I feel cleaned. And sometimes I just have people stand up at their desks and move their bodies. There's some research that moving your hand across the midline of your body changes your brain functioning. Oh, that's easy. Okay. And so if you can stand up and swing your arms around, right, it actually, this possibility exists that it makes your brain more flexible. There you go. This feels like something a clown does in performing for children. And just imagine how stressful that job is. (laughs) That's the takeaway, Jennifer. How clowns (laughs) get through their work day. You'll learn that and also at your job. Okay. Well, we're doing some laughing. That's also in your list. Tell us about that. Laughing is great for our bodies. And it's also great for our communities. The thing that surprised me in my research about laughing... I thought, maybe you think, we laugh at something that's funny. We think that it's the funny thing out there that causes the laughter in here. But actually, Mm -hmm. it turns out 
that laughter isn't that much about what's funny out there. Laughter is a social cueing more than it is about our response to laughter. We all actually know this because we've all watched something that we thought was hilarious And then we showed that hilarious thing to somebody who was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in our lives. Mm -hmm. And when we showed it to them, it wasn't funny anymore. We were like, oh, this is embarrassing that I'm showing you this right now. So everybody who's had that experience understands that laughter is more about the relationships than it is about the actual funny thing. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that our willingness to laugh together It's really important to things like team cohesion, the ability of teams to be creative together, the ability of um, people to feel psychologically safe together, right? All these things that we want, laughter opens up a door to that. The kind of, as I read across the research, the, the kind of pro tip here is not that you have to be funnier, but it's that you have to just be more frequent a laugher right? More gracious with your giving of laughter. And if you think of your laughter as a gift that makes social situations easier, suddenly it becomes easier to laugh. People laugh more around you. They feel more comfortable around you. My co-author, Carolyn Coughlin, who's my friend and colleague, as well as the co-author of this book, she laughs so easily, more easily than just about anybody I've ever known. And when people describe her, they say, Carolyn is hilarious. Mm-hmm. I've been friends with Carolyn for 20 years. She's not hilarious. She's She just <laughs> on the laughs record. a lot. <laughs> on the record. On the record. <laughs> okay. She doesn't very often say things that are funny, but she participates in laughing so much that everybody gets funnier when Carolyn is around. She makes you feel funnier and she makes you feel connected to her. It's not being funny. It's being generous with your laughter. I like that a lot. And it's true. When I'm saying things, they're even mildly amusing. And the person I'm talking to is laughing. I feel good. I like them more. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. And it's all sorts of good things are flowing there. So I've actually tried to get myself to laugh on command and pulled up some random YouTube videos to facilitate that. I didn't have the best of luck pulling that off, Jennifer. So so how can I just get better at laughing if I'm not just getting exposed to more hilarious stimuli? Yeah, right. Yeah. Laughing, because it's a social phenomenon, there is this whole thing which I have not found research on, but I'm curious about like the things we only laugh at when we're alone, like the whatever stupid cat videos or whatever it might be. But by and large, laughter is much easier to find in social situations, which is why early sitcoms had laugh tracks Mm -hmm. because they cue us. Oh, it's time for me to laugh now. That must be funny. And it's actually like many complex phenomena, that it's actually hearing other people laugh that signals to you that you find it funny, which is why we have so much more laughter in groups than we do by ourselves. And it's why in our hybrid world, when we're alone in a room and on mute and everybody else is on mute, we just laugh a whole lot less because we hear other people's laughter less. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's the thing that shaped it for me is 
to be able to notice myself, again, it starts with noticing, to be able to notice myself and to begin to turn like the idea. I think sometimes I would have had kind of like the Mona Lisa smile, like, oh, you said something amusing. Mm -hmm. I will kind of smile in your direction. And now that Mm -hmm. I understand what laughter actually is for my nervous system, for your nervous system, and for our relationship, now that I know, it's like, oh, I can actually laugh. I think there's a way I was actually holding myself back from laughing. And the thing I'm doing now is doing that less. And by doing that less, I laugh more. And when I laugh more, the other person laughs more and it becomes just hilarious. Mm -hmm. It becomes much, much funnier a world. Okay. And we need that. Our nervous systems need that. Our relationships need that. All right. And you've got also the recommendation that we should do some more wondering. Yeah. I love the word wonder because it let me get two geniuses in one. Because wonder has both the idea of like awe. And there's a lot of research on awe, on the sense of majesty, the sense of being connected to and part of something so much bigger than us. And we tend to find this sense of awe at the Grand Canyon or when a choir is singing very beautifully at church or like wherever that might be for you. And it turns out that we can go looking for that. We can, we can have, I've sent hundreds of leaders out into their neighborhoods, their city neighborhoods and said, go find something that fills you with awe. And they're like, like I'm not going to find something that fills me with awe. And they come back and they're like, oh my God, there's so much there that fills me with awe. The intention of finding awe actually activates our capacity to find it. So another thing you can do on your lunch break, if you're feeling tired or overwhelmed, you can wander around and see whether you can find something that strikes you as awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, grass is awesome. Trees are unbelievably awesome, right? The way that we've been able to build buildings, make neighborhoods, there's a lot in the world that is filled with wonder. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing wonder leads us to is curiosity, right? When we are wondering, then this question about how can we be curious about things? Certainty is unhelpful in complexity because it's a narrowing emotion. What we want is curiosity. And so again, the, the question is how do we inject more more curiosity into our lives? How do we shift some of the the certainty that just arises for all kinds of reasons? How do we shift that into some kind of wondering, some kind of musing, Mm. some kind of, I wonder if I could connect to some new idea, new possibility? That's cool. Well, now tell us, Jennifer, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? The last thing I'll say is the thing this book has convinced me is that we can create the conditions in our lives for complexity to be more manageable, more fun, and for us to stay connected to ourselves and to other people as we face into it. And I've found that knowing that I can create the conditions in my life for that has made every day better. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So I'm hoping that your listeners get to connect to that idea. Okay. Can you tell us about a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I think the quote that has moved me the most 
is attributed to a whole bunch of different people, but I tend to attribute it to the Talbot. And it says, we do not see the world as it is. We see it as we are. And I find that idea magical. Mm -hmm. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? My favorite research is research on willpower and how we use willpower. And they took uh, scientists, diabolical scientists, Mm -hmm. gave people a really difficult task. And then they had them walk down the hall to another room and pass somebody who had a plate of hot chocolate chip cookies. And they noticed and some people and people were offered the hot chocolate chip cookies. And those people who declined the chocolate chip cookies did less well on the cognitive test after declining the chocolate chip cookies. It turns Mm. out that the act of willpower actually uses up some of our cognitive possibility and it's depleting. And so if you're relying on willpower to make a change, it actually makes you stupider. I see. Okay. Good to know. And a favorite book? My favorite book in this field is called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Mm -hmm. Robert Sapolsky. I think it is laugh out loud funny. You'll learn everything, everything about stress and the body and have fun doing it. Oh, cool. And a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? What helps me be awesome at my job? I am very grateful for the for the microphone you sent me because that shows that you are awesome at your job and you are going to help me be more awesome at my job. Oh, thank you. And your favorite habit? Habit. I have all these sleep habits that are super important to me right now. Really this, this idea of can I plan my day so that I can get more sleep and can I shift to, so here's what I do. I shift to my favorite herbal tea at noon. So I shift away from coffee and tea with caffeine and I love this habit. It's delicious. Mm -hmm. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you often? Asking the question, how can I be wrong? Mm -hmm. People love this question. When you are feeling certain about something and you are feeling closed and you are just trying to hammer your way through Asking the question of yourself, how could I be wrong here, actually opens you up to new possibilities. And even though this is the simplest question in the world, I swear, and I obviously didn't come up with it, right? Like I didn't make it up. Mm -hmm. If you look me up, you'll find this quote. People quote me about this all the time. Okay. How could I be wrong about this? When you're feeling too certain and dug in, it's like punching a skylight in and letting new possibilities stream through the roof. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I have a great website, cultivatingleadership.com. And there's just a ton of, we believe in sharing everything we know with anybody who cares. So papers, articles, videos, podcasts like this one. My colleagues and I are constantly trying to figure out how to make the world better and how to help us all be awesome at our jobs and at our lives. And you'll see lots of good stuff there. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think the the question is, can you bring the fullness of you to work, right? Can you find a way to cultivate the you that you feel the most proud of? This is, we are often at work trying to be the thing that we think other people want us to be. And the work I do 
is to help people find what's the greatness that's theirs and then how do they create the conditions like unleashing their complexity, genius and other things that help them bring that greatness to the world. All right, Jennifer, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and fun in the midst of complexity. Thank you so much. It'll be great. I hope the complexity of you and your new growing family, I hope you get some sleep. Oh, thank you. I really like what Jennifer had to say with regard to the effect of uncertainty on the nervous system. And I think I knew that conceptually, but just thinking about it in this specific way, oh, is, oh it's uncertainty. That's what I'm feeling. That's why I'm feeling kind of freaked out by this new development is because I had some certainty, but then this new development has brought things into uncertainty and that is a stressor and that is a normal human response. Okay, cool, cool, cool. As opposed to being like, what's wrong with me that I'm so freaked out about this thing? It's like, oh, that's a normal for everybody. And now here's how we deal with it. Good stuff from Jennifer. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP817. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.